Aloha kako. You are listening to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Our vision is to create a resource for pilina or connection to place, and Native Stories aims to activate Indigenous perspectives. Aloha kako ova ona ne loko ina no papalea wahu mea no ma kika puame wichita. Um, hello everyone, my name is Nanea Lo and I come from Papakalea, Oahu. I am now residing on Kikapu and Wichita land, um, or better known as Dallas, Texas. And mahalo nui for joining us on another episode of Native Stories. So this episode is in part of our COVID-19 series on community work in the Hawaiian Kingdom. And so we'll be touching on food sovereignty and sustainability on this episode. Today we have Brandon Makaava'ava. He is the Deputy Head of State of the Nation of Hawaii, the oldest Hawaiian independence organization in Hawaii. He assists Head of State Dennis Bumpy Kanahele in the day-to-day operations of the village of Pu'uhonua o Waimanalo, um, the nation's sovereign land base that's home to 90 Hawaiian nationals. Brandon also leads um, nation of Hawaii's delegation to the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, where he has given interventions over the past three years of Hawaiian national sovereignty, peaceful coexistence, reconciliation, economic development, innovation. Brandon is also vice president of Nalpoe Kokua, a nonprofit organization that advocates for the development of more affordable housing options for Hawaiians. Brandon advocates on behalf of Nation of Hawaii at all levels of government on different issues impacting Hawaiians and their rights. So aloha, Brandon. Aloha, Nanea. Um. Yeah, so diving right into it, where are you from and where do you live now? Okay, um, I am actually, my family is originally from Papakolea as well on Aniani Ku Street. And um, well, actually, not Aniani Ku Street, Aniani Ku, but um, uh, we're on Awailimu Street. And um, now I reside in the homestead of Waimanalo. And um, I work, of course, in the nation of Hawaii at Puhono Waimanalo. What is the nation of Hawaii? And like, can you share more about, I mean, I'm sure you can all the time. Like, what is Puhonua? What is Puhonua Waimanalo? And yeah, if you could further explain that for our listeners, because they're probably thinking the same thing too. Yeah. So um, the nation of Hawaii was actually started by uh, my uncle, uh, Dennis Pompikanahele. And, um, if, um, you know, that he actually started an occupation first um, in 1993 down at uh, Makapu Beach, what, what uh, people refer to as Kaupo. And um, it was a 15-month occupation. He basically went down there and and helped to um, organize the houses Hawaiians that were living all across the coastline. Um, you know, he just, he got sick of it. He got sick of seeing his people down there and they just got like pushed out and, and there was like nowhere for them to go. And then, you know, all kinds of things was happening. So he went down there and he helped to kind of like organize them into like an area. So they set up the area at Kaupo. 
But during that time, 1993, was also like the year of the Hawaiian. And this was the 100-year anniversary of the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. So from January 17th, when they had all of the festivities at Iolani Palace, you know, they had Hawaiian things going on every month and, and all these things. And, you know, my uncle thought that, you know, if it's going to be a Hawaiian, you know, push like this, let's go down and let's occupy our lands. And so he got them all together, organized them, and they started occupying Kaupo. Well, at the same time, they was getting word from Washington, D.C. that there was this bill going through uh, Washington. And um, it, it was about an apology to Native Hawaiians. I mean, I mean, not just Native Hawaiians. They, they say Native Hawaiians, but actually it's all Hawaiians. And so this was called public, U.S. Public Law 103-150. And so my uncle started to get briefed about this public law and that when this law was coming out, that it was going to change things for Hawaiians because this is the first time that America is actually admitting that they took part in an illegal overthrow. And, um, you know, for you lawyers out there, once you admit to something like that, you're admitting to a crime. So there are, you know, ramifications that happen because of that. And so my uncle started to educate the Hawaiians down there on the apology law. And when um, around July, uh, Governor Wahe'e at the time, the, the first Hawaiian governor of Hawaii, he started to organize um, a sovereignty advisory commission. And so this was a 22-member commission made up of uh, Hawaiian leaders from all sides of the, the issue. Um, they had like Mililani Tras, Haunani Tras, Kamaki Kanahele, you know, people on, on one side of the, the spectrum of sovereignty and one side, you know, on the other. And so he also asked my uncle to be part of the commission. And so when he got the phone call, he was like surprised, you know, like, um, Governor, why are you asking me, you know, to be part of this commission? I am going against you guys right now at Kaupo. I'm illegal, you know, I'm occupying and, you know, you guys having problems, whatever. And and the governor said that, um, you know, we just like to have your perspective because it's 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 interesting and it, and it is something that, you know, our people should learn about too, which is independence, Hawaiian independence. And so he joined on to the 22-member commission and he actually was in charge of the international law side. So his job was to actually bring in an international law expert to give the state of Hawaii his legal interpretation of what the apology law means. Not under American law, not under state of Hawaii law, but looking at it basically from justice, the perspective of justice, not picking sides and just seeing what this law now means. So when um, when he was given that task, he actually reached out to uh, Professor Francis Anthony Boyle. Um, he's an international law professor that teaches at the University of Illinois. Um, he was um, a legal advisor for Yasser Arafat. He was um, he was part of helping the Palestinian nation be formed. He helped them write their Declaration of Independence. He also was the one that prosecuted Slobodan Milosevic in the 90s for war crimes. And Slobodan Milosevic was a head of state of either Croatia or Yugoslavia. But he was, you know, he was using chemical weapons. He was using all kinds of stuff. He was a lawyer that they brought in to prosecute. 
So he was the first guy to ever prosecute a head of state. And so wow, that's big time. How did it, you get like, connected with that guy? Um, he's just he's around a lot of independence movements. And my uncle actually read a book that he wrote talking about independence. And so he like, you know, you know, back then it wasn't no internet. So you had to go like hunt for this guy in the phone book and, you know, figure out a way. But he was able to actually send a message to him at the university. That was a good thing about work. He was working at a university. So he had like the, um, I don't know what they, they used to call emails before, but it was like, like almost like a telegram or telex or something. So they, they sent him a message and he agreed to come over. And so, they signed the apology law on November 23rd, 1993. They scheduled Francis Boyle to come down one month later to give a talk at the Mabel Smite Auditorium in downtown Honolulu. And um, at this talk, he was going to give his legal analysis of what the apology law meant to him in his view. And so at this um, auditorium, there's about a thousand Hawaiians there, you know, activists, uh, politicians, you know, all kinds of people was over there. And um, Francis Boyle gave this speech and, and his first, um, you know, his first couple minutes, what he just, he laid out to everybody, just point blank that now that America has finally apologized for the stealing of Hawaiian national sovereignty and the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom, the Hawaiian people can now restore their independence in front of everybody. He said that in front of the politician, the state of Hawaii paid this guy to give that speech, and that's what he told them. And so, like, they were like, you know, the whole place erupted. Everybody was like, oh, my God, this is like, you know. Because up until that point, they just was thinking, oh, that's nice, America apologizing, you know. We'll get, like, Hawaiian Day or whatever. <laughs> no. Francis Boyle said that this is a legal, you know, this is a legal thing. This is, like, somebody admitting to a crime. And now that somebody has made it to a crime, there are ramifications that happen after this. There's reconciliation. There's all kinds of steps that have to occur now that America is officially. Because when you read the apology law, he says that every whereas clause is a finding of fact by Congress. And not everybody in Congress actually wanted the apology law signed. A lot of them, which was like Republicans, were like, you know, you guys don't know what you're doing right now. You think you're just apologizing and just, you know, trying to do a nice thing. But what you're really doing is unlocking uh, a door that the Hawaiians can actually use to go regain their independence because that is the only way the clock can truly be turned back. Because by doing this, you're taking everybody back to the crime scene. And so Francis Boyle said that now that they've done this, this is your opening, Hawaiian. You have to go in and restore your independence. So everybody's cheering and all that. And when all that, like, subsided, you know, everybody's stuck there like, okay, so now what do we do? So my uncle went up to Francis Boy and he asked him, Francis, I, I know what you just said, and I love it. And, I, and, and you know, I'm, I'm all in. So what do we do? And he said, Bumpy, you have to make a, a public announcement and restore your independence. He said, that's it? He said, yep, that's it. You start it. You start your government. You start the process. Nobody can stop you because this is now, the ball is in your court. And so one month later, so November 23rd, they signed the apology law. December 21st, Francis Boyle comes here, gives that speech at Mabel Smite Auditorium. 
January 16th, Uncle Bumpy and his kupunas and the people that was occupying Makupu Beach went to Iolani Palace, and over there they proclaimed the restoration of independence for all the Hawaiian people. We restored everybody's sovereignty that day. You know, this wasn't just for our group and our nation and all of that. We was making a public statement that, you know, now that this law was been said, we had advice by a legal attorney that we have to restore our independence. Just like when they overthrew our government, they never tell all of us, you know, we had to all come down and sign over everything. Or when we even become became um, U.S. citizens under statehood, they never go to every single Hawaiian and they had to sign off on all this. They just did one blanket statement like, okay, now you're not part of the Hawaiian kingdom. You're part of the Republic of Hawaii. And then came 1959. Okay, now you're not part of the territory of Hawaii. You're U.S. citizens, right? One blanket statement out to everybody. So my uncle did the same thing. You know, we're not part of the United States anymore. We're, we're restoring our independence, and this is open to everybody. Whether they want to do it or not, all Hawaiians have the right today because we're making a public statement, we're taking it back, and we're going to start the process. So on that day, January 16, uh, 1994, my uncle and his kupunas initiated um, a one-year-long process, a constitutional convention, to actually create a constitution for the nation of Hawaii. So this was a constitution that was written by kupunas from all islands. Um, we gathered um, over the span of that year. We went to different sites and all that. And um, in January 16, 1995, one year later, we promulgated the constitution of the nation of Hawaii. And so we started that whole process. And at the same time, we were, you know, occupying Makapu Beach. But during 1994, um, we've been occupying Makapu Beach for like 15 months. And, you know, the state really couldn't do anything, especially now that the apology law came out. Even more, the, the stance got even more stronger because now we're not just here because we're Hawaiian and this is lineal ties to our lands and blah, blah, blah. No. These are our lands because in the apology law, you apologize for taking 1.8 million acres of crown lands and turn that into state of Hawaii land. So this beach park is part of the state of Hawaii. It's part of the inventory that you stole from us. So we as the Hawaiian nationals are taking back these lands and we're not going to go anywhere because you haven't decided a process. You, you haven't figured it out. We're not waiting for your process. We're occupying these lands. So they got even more entrenched there. And, and if it was like 10 or 20 people, yeah, they could have brought in the cops and, and kicked everybody out. But by that time, we had 200, 300, you know, climbing. And so they couldn't do anything. And then when we started to build houses down at Kaupo, and we actually started to build structures, like we was going to live there forever, that is when the state got like real nervous. And so, you know, they kept, offering my uncle, you know, lands and, you know, other things. But at that time, my uncle went wake up the national identity in the Hawaiians that was already living at the beach. You know, they had no self-esteem. They had no, you know, when you when you become houseless, you lose more than just your house. You're losing, you know, your yourself. And basically giving them back that education of educating people on the apology law and, and showing them that this is you they're talking about. They're apologizing to you, not to Queen Leleokalani, and not to the Hawaiian kingdom and the royal families. They're apologizing to you, me, your kids, my kids, 
everybody because we were all affected by by this action and this law is here to correct that action and so they got empowered and so my uncle already had previous occupation you know um history he occupied Makapu Lighthouse in 1987 with his family and, and other families. And, you know, that lasted like a couple months, but then the cops came in again and swept everybody out and they were left with nothing. And so this time my uncle saw this as like an opportunity, like, you know, we finally have leverage. And, and you know, what he was worried about is that the thing getting so big, you know, the occupation getting so big and, and out of control, because now you're talking about 300 people. Not everybody is there for the right reasons, right? You, you stay alongside the highway, all kinds of things can happen. You know, you, we're protesting, yeah, on one side, but on the other side of the, the occupation, there are things that we, we don't know about, you know? And so it, 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 it'll eventually, they'll, you know, the state can use that against us. And so what my uncle finally decided was that, you know, they was offering land, at the back roads of Waimanalo, these, these, these 55 acres where we will later create Kuono Waimanalo as a way for us to move the occupation from Kaupo up there, you know. And so my uncle, at the end of the 15 months, he called DLNR up and he said, you know what, um, we're going to move. I need you guys to come down here and help us move these structures up to the mountains. And so that's what they did. The state went down there with their trucks, loaded up the houses that we built down there unpermitted, and brought all those houses up to Puhonua Waimanalo. And they helped us with the um, sanitoids. They, like the first couple of years, the state of Hawaii paid for that because they wanted us off of the beach. They, you know, we finally had the leverage where they couldn't legally take us out. We left because we was going to go occupy other state lands that they stole from us. But we with the understanding that this at Puhonua Waimanalo is where we would set up the nation, is where we would set up infrastructure, is where we would build our lives. Because previously, these people had no houses. You know, they were houseless people. But now we have an opportunity to build our future for ourselves, build houses, build infrastructure, farm our lands, you know, do all of these things. So in a nutshell, sorry, but this wow. is... I mean, I've always wanted to know that history anyways, but I just... Yeah. So mahalo for sharing that, because that's definitely a super-duper interesting history, and I actually visited um, Pu'u Honua Oai Manalo in 2012, like way back in the day when wow. I was still like colonized and indoctrinated in the brain um, with Native Hawaiian Student Services from UH Manoa. They have um, like a transition program from community colleges to UH Manoa. And so that was a part of their little, like their, their little summer. Um, I'm blanking on It's a transition program. Right. And so um, they took us over there, but I guess nobody was in the front, so they didn't feel comfortable with going inside. But that's the first time in 2012 that I like came across it, and it had like you know the um, nation of Hawaii, and I was actually with um, a fellow cohort member, um, Kukana Tutmo. 
and yeah, and so I just feel like I have history there, but I never really knew because I just didn't know who to ask. And so I feel like it's been for me a journey of learning this history. <laughs> so it's been cool. But yeah, well, you came back in uh, last year, right, with the Indigenous Connectivity Summit. Yeah, and so I just came. That's how I I know Brandon because I randomly added him on Facebook, and I know his wahine from a firm Hawaii um, because there's a lot of women that are in a firm Hawaii who are lawyers and you know solidarity across all boards. You know what I mean? But so that's how I met Brandon. Is he did a kahea about what was it called? What kind of summit was it called? It was an Indigenous Connectivity Summit where we uh, created Hawaii's first community broadband network. Yeah, for broadband network. And um, he made a kahea like, hey, if anybody's interested in learning about this kind of stuff, like, come through. And I was like, I'm interested because, you know, I do believe in restoring sovereignty in all kind of aspects. Um, and I do believe that, yeah, broadband connection is, because um, I've heard a few other podcasts of people talking about, yeah, restoring in their own uh, land. So I was like, wow, this is so interesting. And I, I haven't been to Puhonua Waimanala like since 2012. So I was just like very enthusiastic to come. So that's how I met Brandon. And then I just asked him if he wanted to come and talk about uh, food sovereignty and also about the Puhonua and um, the nation of Hawaii. So that's how how he's on here (laughs) um yeah and then so I actually got to see kind of the evolution well not really I mean because I only seen the beginning like the entrance part of the Pu'uhonua but from 2012 to now like the entrance has changed drastically they have like very professional or like you know like more official signs and like a whole gate and it's just it's beautiful i i I need to visit again (laughs) yeah you gotta when you come back you know after your quarantine and stuff but yeah no and and you know just that time frame from 2012 to 2020 today i mean we've we've evolved so much because you know it's just when 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 you're nation building and, and you're doing it without any support from, you know, no federal funds, no state funds, no help from OHA, no help from commandment schools, you're basically pushing this boulder up this mountain. But, um, you know, along the way, you find ways to help, you know, build relationships with other organizations, you know, that, that might not necessarily be um, organizations that, that, work solely with Hawaiians, you know. We've done movies, you know, during that time. We've we've made these these broader connections. Um we have our connection with the United Nations through the International Indian Treaty Council where Uncle Bumpy is a board member and me and Lindsay are uh, alternate board members and it, and International Indian Treaty Council is actually the first non-governmental organization in the United Nations. You know, they were they were the ones that spearheaded the adoption of the UN drip, you know? And so these organizations and, and all these relationships that we had to build around was because there was political barriers here that, that would, would prevent 
or try and stifle what we're doing in the Pu'uhonua because if more Hawaiians could see what could be done if we were just given land or, or forced our way onto land and started to establish these Pu'uhonua's, then that would be like, you know, something that would totally like blow everybody's minds and more Hawaiians would actually do what we're doing. But because we're so bogged down by the, you know, just life in Hawaii is so expensive here. And our people, we so, you know, we're at the bottom of the barrel of, of social conditions. We just cannot even dream that these things are actually happening. So part of our mission at the nation Part of our mission at Pu'ono Waimanalo is to share with every Hawaiian that passes through there what the possibilities of an independent Hawaii can and does look like. Because for all intensive purposes, the Pu'ohonua is the example of what Hawaiian independence looks like. Everything that we've built in there is built without permit. Everything that we do in there we do ourselves. We run our own electricity. We run our own water. We built our own houses. We built our own roads. The gate we built, we farm our own stuff. Even the community broadband network that we built over there, we had experts come in there and help us build our own system so that we understood how to run the system, not get somebody in there and donate the system and they build it for us and then they leave and then two months later, when something happens, we have no idea what to do. That's not how it works if you're nation building. We have to empower ourselves with the knowledge that, you know, if, if everything shuts down on the outside, are we able to live independently? And that's why food sovereignty is like the first step in, in going to towards that move. You know what I mean? We're talking broadband network and all of that. that that's a little bit more down the line. This is... You know, this is a 20-plus year progression where we got to the point where, okay, we now, we, now we're creating our own internet. But food sovereignty is something that is innate in all Hawaiians. We, this is not something that is foreign to us. might be foreign to our current selves, but in our blood, we are farmers. You know, and, and, and so when you, when you see things like COVID-19 hit or like even when hurricanes come up and, and, and people freak out because – the shipments will stop and everything. You know, we, this is where the Hawaiian people have the opportunity to step up and to, and to actually start to flex some of that pedigree that we have as farmers, as people that have sustained life in these islands. Nobody else can say that because the current government is not sustaining life here. You know, the, 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 you know, every other race that has come here and, and, and has made their place here in Hawaii, they cannot lay claim to the fact what Hawaiians did was unmatched in Hawaii. We wrote the book on how you live in Hawaii responsibly, sustainably, and we prospered. We didn't just survive, we prospered. And, and that is part of that innate knowledge that we have as Hawaiians and, you know, this, this COVID-19 and, and everybody exercising that food sovereignty is such a wonderful thing. You know, I mean, there, there are bad things to the coronavirus and all that, but this is like some of the silver lining things that I think that, you know, really is going to help push sovereignty to that next level because what you have to do is take that little leap of faith. 
when you when you when you when you want to exercise your sovereignty like i wasn't doing this all my life you know for the first 30 years of my life i was living the straight you know regular american lifestyle i worked at longs for like 13 years and um you know i just had a regular nine to five job i I never know nothing about my rights. I never know nothing about, you know, sovereignty and all that. Uh, I know my uncle was doing plenty of stuff, Uncle Bumpy, but he was always like a crazy guy in our family. Like, oh, you, know, you better watch out. You go over there, you know, you lose your job, you lose this, that, you know, whatever, because you got to go sovereign. And so when I was going through this transition in my life where I wanted to leave my job and, you know, you know, I wanted to do something else and, and, Luckily, my job wouldn't just let me go. So now I could, you know, claim unemployment. I went to, to work with my uncle for free, you know, for like the first two years and just be around him and just understand these things. And, and you know, as I started to take part and I, I started to, um, you know, gain the trust of my uncle, he started to delegate certain kulianas to me. And, and um, one of them is talking with students. One of them is like doing um social media you know and then doing all these other things but this is all part of that you know building up your sovereignty in in yourselves because yeah the hawaiian kingdom you know all these things existed but without the hawaiian people there is no hawaiian kingdom there is no nation of hawaii us as kanaka are the ones that have to exercise our sovereignty it's not going to be exercised because of a law. It's not going to be exercised because there is no treaty of annexation. It's going to be exercised when we as Kanaka step up and start to take responsibility and start to empower ourselves and start to become less dependent on the oppressive system. And that is our whole viewpoint on sovereignty today. It's not so much it's a challenge against the United States or even a challenge against the state. It's a challenge to us, whether we're ready to take this leap of faith. And that's why food sovereignty in COVID has fast forwarded all of our brains. Like some people have realized like, Hey, I can small kind do this. I can like grow my own food. I am like one more step closer to independence, you know, food, you know, you need food. I mean, you're not making your own clothes yet. You're not, you know, building your own houses yet you're not doing all these other things but food this is a start yeah i mean i feel like you've touched on so many great points that i agree with too because when you talk about flexing of yeah kanakamoli stepping up as just like mahiai of the land and you know stepping into our ancestors you know, shoes in a way, it makes complete sense because I have like seen the progression, especially during COVID of the farmers stepping up and like creating CSA boxes or just like answering the call to feed the communities from however resources they have. And it's been amazing. Um, I know some, some people that I went to school with, like I see like before COVID like you know them actually yeah like occupying land and creating um you know lo'i and stuff like that and I I know for a fact that probably now it's just it's been twofold that they've been 
having the time to do that as well, but also being re like lighting that fire within them to do that because they're like, yeah, we need to get this on the road. Like, because, and I've seen that fire of people just that light bulb go off in their brains that like, wow, we really cannot rely on the fake state on the federal American government for our futures of our families. And so, yeah, I like that point. Um, Another one, I love that you touched upon going outside of Hawaii for resources and allyship with other Indigenous and non-Indigenous folks um, to help raise awareness, create sovereignty and restoration. Um, I can say personally, as you know, a Hawaiian Kingdom Patriot, as a Kanakamoli who's been traveling around and doing all kinds of random programs and meeting other Indigenous and Native folks doing great work within their communities and nations. Um, that's the way to go. You know, we don't only have to rely as Kanakamoli on the Office of Hawaiian Affairs or Kamehameha Schools. There are, we've had um, a guy named Stephen Hernandez come on and talk about philanthropy work. There is so many organizations and billion dollar companies that, you know, if Kanaka broadened their horizons and, you know, like sought out those opportunities. There's a lot of money that can flow into initiatives, other initiatives too, you know? So mahalo for sharing that. And and I wanted to ask too. um, So in the introduction that I shared, um, you said there's 90, 90 people, Hawaiian nationals who live up at, um, can you share, like, I guess the history kind of there? I mean, you did share a little bit, but a little bit more. And then um, how folks that live in the Pu'uhonua kind of contribute to, yeah, like food sustainability practices and resiliency outside of food sustainability practices and stuff. We actually interviewed... Um, to Neil? Yeah, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, you so, her? no, I didn't get to interview her, but um, we've actually been interviewing a lot of folks from Waimanalo, which I love because right. my dad lives in Waimanalo with my auntie them. But it's just, I feel like all all of your voices in each episode that we interview folks, it it gives a round perspective for folks. Or shout out. All the listeners, um, check out our other Waimanalo <laughs> episodes too after this one. But but yeah, so we had Tanielle come on and talk about her um, childhood and like having Bu- Uncle Bumpy be her dad. And so I feel like it's, you know, but yeah, so how, how are uh, folks like involved with sovereignty and, you know, food sustainability and stuff like that in the Pu'uhonua. Right. So um, right now it's kind of like um, we, we kind of uh, just 
like we we're working on economic sovereignty. So right now we're we actually employ um I think most of the adults in the village in, in some of our uh, businesses that we've created. And um and so that's one way they contribute, you know, and they work for us, you know, in some of these businesses. But they also, you know, they also contribute in other ways like um you know, when you when you're actually self-governing and you actually have your own water lines, your own electric lines, your own roadways, your own trees, you know, all of these things. When something goes wrong in our Noah and like power goes out inside there, not out not from the outside causing it, but inside the Noah, you can't call Hawaiian electric. You have to go fix it. And so luckily our people in the Honua are part of that um, infrastructure for us. We have somebody that deals with the electric. We have somebody that deals with the water line. So if somebody like, you know, is digging up their yard and putting in a mala and then they hit a water line and then, you know, there's water everywhere. We call, you know, my cousin, Wes, you know, can't, bruh, you know, somebody bust the line, you can help us. Okay? And he brings down the machine and then we, we just go to work. That kind of stuff, you know, mostly, um, the, the Pu'un Honoa helps to kind of just like keep life sustained in the Pu'un because if, you know, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be this example to show to everybody because it would be chaos and we, we would look helpless because, you know, every time something go wrong, we, we got to call somebody or whatever. We're never going to move forward. So the Pu'un Honoa basically supports itself kind of like an outwa system of before. Where they, you know, you have people that grow food in there. You have people that that handle the electricity, that handle the internet, that handle the water, that handle all these things. And we work kind of like as a as a family. And um, even down to the kids, where you know we we have um, we have programs for the kids when there's holidays and stuff. Everybody gets together. There's you know there's a place for us to gather. You know, in our big pavilion, we have families from outside. They take part in you know, the festivities over there. But life has actually, you know, gotten better for the people that live in the Pu'ohono. In the very beginning, it wasn't like that. In the very beginning, you know, when we first got off the beach and when we first got into there, we actually had to clear that land. That, that land was actually an invasive forest. So as soon as you got to the gate, from there on was trees, all the way up the hill, all the way to the top. And now when you go in there, there are clear way, you know, clear open spaces where people have houses built, where we have a road, you know, it, it's, I mean, there's still trees around, but imagine those trees were in the Puhonoa, they were in the village. So everybody, you know, they spent the first five years clearing trees and just clearing out areas. And um, the first thing that was built in the Puhonoa was actually, um, we moved uh, one of the big buildings that was being um, constructed down at the beach. We had the state bring that building up. That building actually became the, the Pu'uhonua's community kitchen. So we built the kitchen right where the right where the big pavilion is, and then we added bathrooms, and then we built the playground. But everybody else built um, had tents, and everybody just camped out for like the first couple years. And as we would get... Um, you know, donations, we would build platforms and people would put their tents on top of the platforms. And then as, as we would get donations or as people would go out and work regular jobs and 
save up money, they would buy material. And that's how people built their houses in the, the Pohono. So some people's houses took like five years to build because they first they started with the platform and then they had the tent and they lived like that for the first year. Then they had enough money to build a couple walls and then they lived like that. You know, no roof, tarp cover, walls. You know, and so people slowly started to do that. So that is kind of like the evolution of what the people in the village was doing in, in, the, in the Pohono. But Pretty much the Puhonua is there to kind of like exist and run itself. And, and in that action, that is sovereignty. That is, the, that, that is the, the example of what it looks like to actually be independent, you know. And, and just the act of doing that alone is, is furthering our cause because we have given the state and the city and everybody else no excuse why they should come in and condemn our place. Everything is safe. Nobody has died in our Pu'unua. Nobody has ever been cited for any kind of dangerous things inside there. You know, just that alone, maintaining that, that sanctity and maintaining and helping us to evolve from where we were, started off as a beach occupation with tents and all that, to now where we have structures, we have buildings, we have, you know, we have infrastructure, we have businesses we have you know this evolution that is kind of the 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 new role that the people that live in the Puhonua play they have to keep pushing this further and 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 you know not everybody is there to, you know full-time like how we are full-time me and my uncle you know sovereignty and doing all these things they're also there living their lives you know but at the same time they're living their lives contributing to the sovereignty that, that we always advocate for. And that's why, you know, we are that example for like people like Auntie Twinkles down in Wyna. You know, she came and she brought her whole crew. The first time we ever did meet Auntie Twinkles, um, she came up and she just went look at our place and like, this is, this is what I want. This is what we want for Pu'ohono Wyna. This is what we want for our people. Two years later or three years later, they have their own property and they're going to start their own Pu'ohono. They raised $1.2 million to purchase their own land and start exactly the way we started. And we have a game plan for them too because we had to learn the hard way. There was no Pu'ohono before us. There was nobody doing what we did before. So we had to learn. We had to put in our own money. We had to do all these things. And, you know, when you don't have a plan, you can waste a lot of money. You can spend a lot of money doing all kinds of other things when really you should have been put in the road first. You should have put in the lights first, the water, the da, da, da. You got to have those steps planned out. So when Anti Twinkle Dem is ready to go, we get the game plan for them. We get the book. Yeah, Anti. Then you go experiment with this. This is, this is 20 years of experience right here. Go. Yeah, that's awesome because, I mean, as an urban planner, um, yeah, I heard about, you know, what they're doing in Waianae and, um, I've actually been able to see some of the plans of, you know, what they're going to use their money for in order to build their structures over there. But I was right. also wondering, I've never been there, which I really need to go, but I just haven't found like the right connection to go. Cause I just don't want to like be like, what's up? You know what I mean? <laughs> But, yeah, I was wondering, like, if they were connected with you all, and yeah. and like, 
I've also heard about one of my um, friends from school. She's from Hawaii Island. And this was like long, long, long time ago. And we only had like maybe one conversation about this, but she, I had no idea about this, but she was um, telling me about, you know, similar pu'uhonua kind of action in the homesteads in Hawaii. And I was like, wow, that's super interesting too. Like, I don't know why we haven't talked about it again too, but do you know what, what she was talking about? There's like, yeah. At King's Landing. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, Onikaka, um, down at, um, that's Uncle Skippy Ioannis, um, organization that they had down there. And they, they kind of started similar like us. And, um, it's a little bit different now because they're, they're part of the, the homestead. So they're on homestead land and stuff. But, you know, yeah, Uncle Dem is down there doing the same kind of similar type stuff. But it's really like, you know, Sometimes it can be tough because it's like, you know, without the organizational structure, you know, like for us, we have the nation, right? So mm-hmm. nobody can go and do like, you know, when they come inside our place and, you know, now you're going to create your own kingdom over here, your own, you know, whatever over here. That ain't going to happen in our pool. No, you are part of the nation. This is all, everybody is pushing for the same thing. If you don't have that structure. Sometimes these types of land occupations and start with good intentions, but they can fall apart if everybody is not on the same page. And that's what normally happens. And it's not to say that what happened at King's Landing, you know, they fell apart. But, you know, it's it's um, it's just a different type of occupation. But, you know, those are different examples of what occupations look like. And, mm-hmm. like, for, for us, our whole thing to anti-twinkle them was, you know, anti, you know, Staying organized, making sure that everybody is on the same page because, you know, you can get all this money and you can do all these things. But if you guys are not pulling together, this thing will fall apart real fast. You know, so having everybody work together and involved together and and, and anti be the catalyst and push everything, you know, because got to have that driver because everything cannot just be democracy because sometimes democracy just, you know, weighs everything down, you know, but you got to have that one that, that punches through, that has that vision. And that's what Auntie is. She's that driver. She's like our Uncle Bumpy. You know, she's she's that type of person. And, and that was her that drove that, you know, and that was her that organized all those people. And that was her that, that helped bring in, like, these different relationships, these outside guys. So now they get a whole hui of people, non-Hawaiians, you know, people that is not houseless, that, that you know, is business owners and all kind of people coming down there and, and throwing in their cocoa to help Auntie them. And that, you know, we we are very close with Auntie Twinkle them. And that, that is actually how they got their name, who own why not, was from us, from that first meeting. Just like, you know, they call us the Boat Harbor, you know, or the Why not Boat Harbor, but. I want to be known as Poor No Why and I. You know, I, I, I like, you know. Oh, I love I think, that. I love that. Yeah. How they got that name, too. I mean, you know, like, like all the listeners, I don't know. Like, I've just step, have been stepping and growing into my identity as a Kanaka. So, you know, the little Olelo Hawaii that I do know, I do use. And, you know, I don't know. Poor No has always been one of those words that, I feel like, I don't know, 
that I've gravitated to as a Kanaka and really resonated with. And um, throughout the years, I definitely have seen, yeah, Pu'unua and Kipuka rise up uh, throughout our land that has really been inspiring to see firsthand. So, yeah, when um, I they said that their name was Puhonua and I was like, oh my gosh, I love it. But I mean, of course it makes sense, but you know, it could, they could have chosen something else. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So I love that you share that history with us. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> so what are some like projects that you guys are currently working on now within the Puuhonua or, or yeah, and just in general? Um, right now we're kind of, um, you know, like doing our agriculture projects um, where we're expanding, um, creating more lo'i because um, what we'd like to do is create like, um, you know, if we can, you know, harvest one lo'i a month, that's good. So you got to create 12 lois. Okay. So we passed that. We, we have like almost 20 lois now. And so our next step is creating 52 lois because there's 52 weeks in a year. And if we can harvest one loi a week and stagger that, we can have enough food to supply not only our nation and our village, but we can actually start to distribute and create, you know, create like, like, like these CSA boxes, you know, I, I get one CSA box from um, these guys. They get $25 a week from us. And, you know, in the beginning it was like, you know, all good, you know, you get fresh vegetables and all that. But now I'm looking at them like, I can grow better stuff than this. This is $25. And I'm like, you know, so now we're expanding that, you know, we want to, we want to get into growing not only kalo, but tomatoes, cucumbers, you know, just have a whole selection of vegetables and create like, you know, just just food sovereignty for not only us, but for our community. And then, you know, expand that. Um, we're working on um, doing a study with University of Hawaii and University of Alberta about our broadband system and about how we use our network inside our village and um, how, how that is going over the, the course of a you know, a year, how we started and how we're managing it and all that, because this is Hawaii's first community broadband network. There is no other example of it. You know, everybody else has to get their internet from Spectrum or Hawaiian Tel or whoever is your service provider. For our village, our nation is the service provider for them. So when, when they get internet services from us, you know, of course, us, we have to get it from Hawaiian Tel because we don't have our own submarine cables. But when it hits the, the gate and when it comes into our village, that is all our infrastructure now. That don't belong to Hawaiian Tel anymore. That don't belong to anybody. We have to manage that. And so now, you know, now that, that we have internet in the village, um, because before we didn't have any, Spectrum and Hawaiian Tel wouldn't come in and they wouldn't run lines inside our village and provide service for all the houses in there because they didn't want the liability. And, and, you know, there was a whole bunch of like red tape and bureaucracy and they gave us all these kinds of excuses. But because we brought in the internet society and we brought in somebody like Bert Lom, who works for DBED in the state of Hawaii, and he's the broadband expert for the state, you know, they kind of flexed their muscle for us and they got us to get Hawaiian Pill on board 
to actually get them to run a line and then it will take it from there. And so now everybody in the village has high-speed internet, whereas before we had no high-speed internet. All of our internet service was coming from cell phones or satellites, and, and it was like really junk, and, and it was slow, and it was very expensive. And so I don't even know how kids would have went to school today in this new COVID world where you have to virtual, you know, you have to virtually go to school. You have to, you know, distance learn. You even have to distance work. We have two, um, we have two uh, charter school Hawaiian immersion teachers that work in our village, that live in our village, that um, can actually work from home now. You know, they teach their class from inside our village to their students that are outside, you know, and as, as part of their stuff. So we're just gathering all that information. We're going to do a study with the two universities. And um, the last thing we're working with, um, kind of going back to um, the education side, we're actually in the, in the process of working with Malama Honoa, which is a local charter school um down here in, in Waimanalo on um, helping to structure a curriculum for their eighth grade class. And um, we're going to teach them about the apology bill. And we're going to teach them about their rights as Hawaiians. And then we're going to teach them about your four identities as a human being that we got from the United Nations, which, you know, I don't think enough of enough Hawaiians understand this or enough people in general. You know, you have four identities, and they're political, economic, social, and cultural. Everything you do in life falls into these four categories. And so we're going to start teaching our um, structure of how we teach adults today and how we teach sovereignty today to these kids to give them a head start. Because, you know, what, what school is teaching their kids about political, you know, their political identities? who to vote for, how to vote, you know, whatever it is. It, that conversation is not happening. Maybe it's happening a little bit in social studies, but they're not getting to exercise that. You know, you don't want to learn about voting and about democracy when you're my age, because now, you, now you're just getting used by somebody. You know, they're telling you to vote for them because they just want your vote, and you never see the guy anymore, and then now you feel like one jerk because you voted for this guy, and, you know, this guy is like a terrible leader. And so maybe it might jade you where, you know, I just give up on voting, you know, but you don't actually see your democracy at work. And so teaching our kids about voting and actually like going through and, you know, like we had this idea of like maybe, you know, when they come up there, they're going to come up once a week to, to um, like spend the whole day with us at the nation. And we're going to like do all kinds of different things, you know, in the law um, maintaining our internet system, um, working with our B guys, working in the agricultural stuff. We're going to have them um, pick leaders. So they're going to have to actually vote for somebody to be the lead, you know, the alaka'i of their, their class for the, the week or the month. And um, we're going to have elections. And so they can see, you know, what, what the power of voting does and that there is a structure that, that you know, somebody is using to run governments because this alaka'i is now going to dictate, you know, whether you guys go to the lo'i today or whether you guys go to 
do the internet work or whether you guys go down to the, you know, picking tomatoes or you guys gonna pick weeds. You know, it depends on your leader who you pick. And and teaching them about economics and how business works and how, how we do stuff. And so we're really excited about those types of things because this, you know, it's with the kids now. We we gotta educate not just the adults and not just change the adults' minds, which is probably way harder than, than anything we do with the kids, but actually getting to the kids because, you know, what we're teaching them is not propaganda and it's not just smoke. You know, it's real things that, that our children should learn that'll better equip them to deal with life in America, in Hawaii, in the kingdom, in the nation, in the world, you know, and, and I don't think we're properly equipping our kids with, with the you know, the tools that they need. I mean, you kind of just go learn about hula and growing kalo and, and all these things. And that's why people always dog on our charter school system because, you know, when they take standardized tests, they have a hard time because they, they, they've they been speaking Hawaiian language most of their lives. So now they got to do an English standardized test that is, you know, curtailed to Western mindsets. They have a hard time taking these tests. They, they can't, you know, it's it's... It's a hard time to adapt that life into this Western life because not everybody is going to be a Hawaiian language teacher and not everybody is going to have a cultural job. How do you take our culture and apply it to engineering? How do you take our culture and apply it to, you know, being a, uh, a physician? How do you take our culture and apply it to all these different things that might not necessarily be what we're teaching our kids in, you know, in in our charter schools, which, you know, is good stuff, but we got to expand and we got to grow with the times and we got to keep our kids at the forefront of technology. And so technology is a big thing to us too. So, yeah, I love that you bring that up because one of my mentors at my Kumu Noilani um, Goodyear Kalpua, um, she was really my first Kumu that kind of, that I went and took her class and, kind of realize what political science was and how important that is in our identities as Kanakamoli and Native and Indigenous people and how we really need to assert our our cultural identities in the forefront in every single thing that we do. And every single thing that we do is a political move. So I really do believe that, um, you know, we need to step into our power when it comes to being political, like we, if you're a Kanakamoli talking about, you know, la and, you know, if you're working on the aina, if you're a mahiai fishing, you are a modern day Kanakamoli still practicing, you know, that rich, rich Ike Hawaii, whether you know it or not. And you're, very political, regardless. Um, yep. All political moves. Yeah, and I just came across this uh, last night. I reposted this on my Facebook. Uh, Nicole Naone, she wrote this. Oh, I know. I, I seen that. I, I shared it after you. Yeah, and so yeah. she wrote, realized that the children who grew up seeing Walter Reddy or Hanani K. Trask blasted as radical heathens by the media are adults now. The grandchildren of people shamed for speaking their native tongue are adults now. 
We own marketing firms. We own publication companies. We own news outlets. We run schools. It makes no difference if you televise our revolution or not. It's already here and we're not stopping. If you think this is nuts, just wait till you meet my grandkids' grandkids. And I feel like... Chickens. Kind of like this is what we were just talking about throughout this whole episode of. Um, that's why I was excited to bring you on too, because I knew it wasn't only going to talk about the realm of food sovereignty. Because yeah. everybody who's been listening um, to Native Stories realizes that all these stories are so intertwined, regardless if you're a Kanakamoli or if you're an indigenous person of some other land. But we are just so complex that there's no way of, of unconnecting all these different facets of what makes us Native and indigenous peoples. Um, yeah, so wrapping it up, I wanted to ask, I asked this with everybody, what do you envision for the future of the Lahui um, in terms of food sovereignty and sovereignty in general? Um, I envision a prosperous future for our people. I envision that once we let go of the training wheels and once we take that leap of faith and we start with if we got to start with food sovereignty, we start there. But once we create these independent models and once we create these examples out there and multiple, multiple, multiple examples of how we can actually pull ourselves out of these oppressive systems and start to exercise our sovereignty. And it's not just a sovereignty is not just political, you know, food sovereignty, um, internet sovereignty, you know, all these different sovereignties we have, we can claim today, right now, if we had the knowledge, if we had the expertise, and if we had the resources. Economic sovereignty is another huge thing that, that you're lucky I never get to talk about that because we wouldn't need another hour. But these are the types of things that, that ICR people are already doing and that we, as a people, have a bright future ahead of us, especially now because of COVID, because what, what has happened with tourism, which has oppressed our people even more so than the military, I would think, because that money is what is on our backs today. Tourism and all that, they don't want to talk about the overthrow. They don't want to talk about these things. So tourism money gets used by politicians to, to suppress the truth. And now that tourism is not going to be that monster that it once was, hopefully this is a time where Hawaiians step up and they start to replace big tourism with agriculture, with innovation, with different types of businesses that, that actually help our environment. And so I think there's a there's a bright future for for our people and for the Lahui if we start to begin to understand the different sovereignties that we can exercise today. But first, you guys got to learn your rights. I would I would suggest that 
you know, as, as my parting shot in this whole thing, you know, you can visit nationofhawaii.org. And on top of there, we have um, a legal foundation. And you click on that legal foundation, and it's going to give you some documents. And that first document is where you start. Public Law 103-150, the apology law. Start there. Understand that law. And then that will open your eyes to what we're talking about today, which encompasses all of that. Sovereignty is not just about protesting and getting arrested for Mauna Kea and, and doing all these marches and all that. That's one portion of sovereignty. But we have to evolve the conversations so that our lives can be living this. Like, it's not just a weekend thing or not just this moment in time, you know, where, you know, one year ago we was on Mauna Kea and yeah, yeah, yeah. Look today. Because of COVID, that whole thing not happening. We got to bring that home to our people. We got to understand that how you exercise sovereignty at home, not just on Mount Akil. When you come home, what can you do? What, what, what is from other steps? Learning your rights is the very first step. So I would just yeah, say that. Yeah. And, and where, where, and our future is bright. So you all heard it. Um, that's his call to action is go to the website. Um, do you want to share with, uh, our listeners, maybe you, your guys' social network too, or yeah, maybe so, if they're involved in, or if they're interested in maybe collaborating with you all or visiting the Puuhonua. Yeah, so um, if if you guys want to follow us, um, I'm on Facebook and and I, I I contribute most of my time on to Facebook actually. So you can find me at Brandon Makaabaaba. Um, and, um, if you guys want to come and visit or set up like, you know, talks or, or, or just do like maybe a cleanup day or something, you know, with, with other Kanaka, you know, maybe, maybe now because of COVID, we got to kind of like, you know, keep the group small and, and, and it'll be kind of limited, but, you know, going forward, you can always DM me on my Facebook. Um, you can also find me on, uh, Instagram at, at Hawaiian national and, um, you know, that I can be reached at those two points. You guys want to reach out to me through there. That's probably the best way. And, um, you know, whether it's to talk story, you know, come visit the Pu'onua, come see what we're doing and see how you can get involved. We're always welcoming more and more people. You know, it wasn't always like this before where, you know, uncle would just be open to bringing all kinds of people in because, you know, before these, they used to have, like, I kid you not, federal agents used to pretend to be part of our community and they used to come in and they used to, like, spy on us because, they, you know, they never know what was like, going on. My, my uncle was like, you know, they, they kind of, like, portrayed him as, like, a Malcolm X figure in our movement. So they had the feds watching us, like, all the time. And so, you know, we wasn't always open to this. So, like, now that, that you know, people... We, we're becoming more connected and more familiar online with sharing more stuff. Um, we, we, we're becoming more comfortable with sharing with our people because this is the only way that it'll happen. It's not going to happen. Our sovereignty is not going to get exercised by just me and Uncle Bumpy. It takes all of us, everybody exercising their sovereignty in different ways because um, that is what our kingdom and our nation was made up of, Hawaiian nationals exercising their national sovereignty. 
Yes. I mean, and I know this to be true because I do follow some of the, the folks who live in the Pu'uhonua and yeah. And like, in um, just people like Tineo, like talking about things on their social media, it's definitely like everyone is contributing to, you know, in their own way. So I love that. Yeah, not everybody can, you know, go to the UN and not everybody is, made to do these different things and, you know, like, whatever. But, like, Tennille Bakes, you know, my cousin grows, uh, you know, bees, you know. My other cousin, you know, he he, he does, um, you know, fishing, you know, all kinds of stuff. It's all part of what a nation is. And I, I think that um, when people and can just find their way. Creating that yeah, conversation like is important which that's why I love working for Native Stories because I mean slowly by slowly it generates conversation and also it's reaching people that maybe we necessarily wouldn't be able to reach because you know some people are still on certain paths where you know they wouldn't feel comfortable reaching out to other people like in certain ways. So I love that this podcast is an avenue, you know, just like a really relaxed avenue where people can just throw it on, listen to whatever when they're driving or, you know, doing housework or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Great platform. You guys right on. Perfect. On that note, uh, mahalo nui for sharing with us um, here at Native Stories. We'll probably have you on again. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and if you all want to further connect with us here at Native Stories, please do. We are still looking for more mo'olelo and stories and podcast hosts. So if anybody's interested in um, trying their hand out in podcasting, um, hit us up. Download our mobile app for place-based stories and listen to us on all streaming podcast outlets. You can just search Native Stories. Follow us on Facebook, again, Native Stories. And we have an Instagram, but it's a little bit different. Um, It's our Native Stories, O-U-R, in the beginning of it. Um, We share daily on Native and Indigenous kind mail or things and make sure to share with us to all of your Ohana and friends. Um, Native Stories prides ourselves in being your resource. And the more you share, the more our Native and Indigenous knowledges and truths are told by us. Sending plenty of aloha to you out there and mahalo for tuning in. Peace.